Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Today we are jumping back into the series we kicked off last week, where we're spending uh, several weeks looking at the life of Moses, which is kind of funny because we kicked off the series and we really didn't even talk about Moses to like the last few minutes, like the last couple verses that we read. But a lot of it was kind of setting the stage and giving us the context for Moses's life. We learned that the Hebrew people have been enslaved by the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And not only that, but he issued a decree that all of the Hebrew boys be thrown in to the Nile, be thrown to the crocodiles. And there was one Hebrew woman in particular that she did comply with that edict, but she did so in a subversive way. She put her son in the Nile, but first she put him in a basket. And she set that basket in the reeds where the baby was discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And she names him Moses. And we talked about this last week. This is very important for this morning. The word Moses, that name is not a Hebrew name. There's a Hebrew equivalent, Moshe, which means to draw out, but Moses itself is actually an Egyptian name that means son of. And the question that we're wrestling with is, well, who is Moses the son of? We don't get his parents' name. He doesn't know his parents. Is he an Egyptian? Is he a Hebrew? Who is Moses? And that's supposed to be the question on our mind as we pick up right where we left off last week, Exodus chapter 2. Today we'll start in verse 11. It says, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. So when we pick up this morning, we get like one of these flash forward moments. It says, years later. And Exodus doesn't tell us how far in the future we are, but in Acts chapter 7, one of the first followers of Jesus, a man named Stephen, he gives a message to the Jewish religious uh, leaders of the day, and in that message, he walks through the entire Old Testament, pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. And in that sermon, he says that Moses was 40 years old at this point. So we're not skipping ahead like five years, 10 years. Moses is 40 years old. And what has been going on in the meantime? Well, I said last week that we're calling this series The Chosen One, but really Moses is just pointing us to Jesus. And in the same way that we read about Moses' birth and infancy and then jump to 40 years old, when we look at Jesus' life, we read about his birth and his infancy. And other than one story, it jumps to Jesus being 30 years old. But there is a verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, says Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. That's all we know about that period of his life. And I think it's safe to say that during that period, Moses was growing in wisdom and in stature. So he grew up in Pharaoh's house. He probably got uh, an education fit for a king. So he was learning math and science, engineering. And we're at the point in his life where he's out of school. He's long out of school. So is he working as part of Pharaoh's administration? I don't know, but he probably has some kind of career, some kind of job. He has grown up. And we don't know why, but for whatever reason, one day he wakes up and it says he wanted to go be with his people. So evidently, Moses knows that he's part of the Hebrew people. Now, how does he know this? I don't know. There's probably likely some racial differences between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. It could be that his own mother had told him the story, how she'd rescued him from the reeds. Like, it could have been a number of things. But here he is growing up in a house that does not feel like his home. And he wants to go be with his people And when he gets there, he sees that there's an Egyptian beating one of the Hebrews. 
It says Moses is looking around. Actually, in the original Hebrew, it says he looks to his left and to his right, as if to say, is anybody going to do anything about this? You see, this guy is being beaten. Who is going to step up and fill the gap? And when no one else was around to bring about justice, Moses springs into action. He strikes the Egyptian, kills him, and then buries the body. And I think this is so important to understand because this reveals a lot about Moses' character to us. Because we see here, Moses has a desire to see justice for the Hebrew people. He has a desire to see the oppressed people set free. But you know what he does? He does the right thing in the wrong way. I think all of us really wrestle with this tension. I think all of us at moments in our life, our hearts have been stirred to see justice brought whether that's videos in the last few years, we've seen videos of police brutality. Maybe we see children who are dying of hunger. We can turn on the news even today and see places of the, country, of the world that are, are being ripped apart by war. And we see it in us, there's this longing for justice. Like something needs to be done. Somebody should do something. But the danger for us is the danger for Moses. We can try to do the right thing, but do it in the wrong way. And that's a great temptation. Because we live in a culture now that says the ends justify the means. And we've got to bring about the results we want, and we'll do whatever we can to get there. Now, I don't consider myself especially old, but I am old enough to remember a time in our country where we felt like character mattered in politics. But I don't know about you, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, that is no longer the case. It is we need to get the right people in office and pass the right laws, and it doesn't matter what their character is. So we're trying to do the right things, but we're approaching it from the wrong way. We want to convince people the truth, so we want to get online and yell at people and denigrate them and call them evil and dehumanize them. We can try to do the right thing, but we do it in the wrong way. That's exactly what Moses did. He committed murder. He acted with violence. And in fact, historically speaking, it wasn't until the fourth century when Christians really ever thought violence was okay. The earliest Christians would read Jesus saying things like, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. And they'd be like, well, we should probably do that. And so they were, they were nonviolent people. And yet here we see Moses resorting to violence to try to bring about God's ends. But listen, for God, the ends never justify the means. The, the, the means are just as important as the ends for God. It's not about just getting things God's way. It's about doing things God's way. Because what I have found is, listen, when we turn the other cheek, yes, there's a risk we will get slapped. Like Jesus' commands are not necessarily commands for how to change the world. They're commands for how to change us. And the change God wants to bring in the world, he wants to start it with us. So we have to be willing to have enough faith. That when God's way doesn't make sense, when God's way seems like it's not effective, that we care more about being faithful than effective, that we have enough trust to do things God's way. Now, Moses kind of leaves this incident behind, and maybe he thinks it's over and done with. But we pick up in verse 13. It says, the next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. So it says the very next day, Moses goes back out to be with his people. And, and I don't know what his attitude was. Maybe he thought, man, I, I stood up for what was right. I did the right thing. But as he goes, he approaches, and this time a Hebrew is being beaten again. But it's not an Egyptian who's the attacker. It's another Hebrew. And Moses says, what are you doing? Why are you attacking your brother? It's bad enough the Egyptians are doing this. Now we're going to turn on each other as well. And they turn to him, and their response is so telling. 
say, who do you think you are? Who made you the commander and judge over us? Who died and made you king? And I wonder if there's a little bit of the thought that Moses... You spent the last four decades in Pharaoh's palace. You've gotten a Pharaoh's education. You eat dinner at Pharaoh's table. What do you think you know about being a Hebrew slave? You think you can just waltz in here and do one thing and think that you're God's gift to earth? Who do you think you are? And then they ask him, are you going to kill us the way you killed the man yesterday? And all of a sudden Moses' heart sinks because he realizes, uh-oh, People know about that. And that's particularly dangerous because in the next verse, we read that when Pharaoh found out, he set out to kill Moses. See, this is a line in the sand kind of moment for him. He had grown up in Pharaoh's palace, but always felt like a stranger. He went to be with his people and was rejected. But in that moment, he had chosen the Hebrews over the Egyptians, and Pharaoh was not going to let that stand. And he goes to kill Moses, and Moses leaves town. So again, Moses, the son of... Who is he the son of? Who is Moses? He's not at home in Pharaoh's palace. He's not welcomed with his people. He heads out into the wilderness. Now he actually arrives in a place called Midian, and he pulls up to a well. And in that culture, wells were like coffee houses or breweries. It was like a place where people would go to hang out and meet other people. And while he's sitting there, he's trying to meet some people. These girls come up, and they're going to draw out some water from the well to water their sheep. And as they're doing this, a group of shepherds comes up and kind of runs the girls off. Now, again, this is the third instance where Moses sees an injustice. The first time it was an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. The second time it's a Hebrew beating a Hebrew. This time it's these shepherds pushing these women away. So again, for a third time, Moses stands up for the girls. He stands up for the oppressed. He stands up for the little guy. And he deals with the shepherds, ends up pulling out the water and watering the flock for these women. They go back home to their dad. Their dad is a man named Jethro. He was a uh, priest in Midian. And he says, why are you guys back so early? Like evidently this whole shepherd thing, it was a problem. Because every day they would go to the well, the shepherds would come, push them away. It was like something that should only take a short amount of time would take a long time because of how much they were being harassed. And he says, how are you back so early? And they said, well, there's this guy, this Egyptian, who actually came and stood up for us. And he watered our flocks. And Jethro says, well, I want you to come bring him over for dinner. And so he comes over for dinner, and, and Jethro is so impressed, he gives his wife Zephora to, or his daughter Zephora to Moses to be Moses' wife. They have a kid together, and he ends up settling down here in Midian. Now, this is huge because all of a sudden we get another piece of the puzzle. Moses did not feel at home in Pharaoh's palace. He wasn't welcomed with his people. He leaves town, and these girls refer to him as an Egyptian. Who is Moses? We don't know. Moses doesn't know who he is. And then we're told that some time passes and Pharaoh actually dies, which in that culture is huge because when the Pharaoh dies, any political exiles are allowed to return back to Egypt to have an audience with Pharaoh so he can uh, pardon them. So this is Moses' shot. He can go back. He can be absolved of any crimes. He can go back home, and yet he chooses to stay in the wilderness instead. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. 
So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? Now, this was written in Hebrew, and it's hard to pick up in the English, but this whole meanwhile thing, we're flashing forward several more years. What we'll find out later is at this point, Moses is 80 years old. So he didn't just take up residence in the wilderness for a few years. This is like double from the time that we last met him. And in that time, he's become a shepherd for his father-in-law's flocks, which, by the way, let's give it up for Jethro. How old was that guy when this happened? But think about Moses' life. He has this miraculous rescue as an infant. He grows up in Pharaoh's palace, probably dreams of grandeur. And then now he's shepherding someone else's flock out in the wilderness. Things probably did not turn out quite like Moses expected. And while he's there, it says he goes to the the part of the wilderness to a mountain called Horeb, which later will be called Sinai. And while he's there, God comes to speak to him in the form of a bush that is burning but it's not being consumed. Now, we could do a whole sermon series talking about what does this burning bush mean? And there's scholars who said that the burning bush that's not actually being consumed is like God because God doesn't need any fuel to keep the fire going. We're at my favorite time of year. It's starting to get cool enough now that I love to go out in our backyard and we'll have these fires and cook s'mores. But there's always this pivotal moment when the fire is dying down and I have to turn to whoever's next to me and ask, do you want me to throw another log on the fire? And what I'm really asking is, are you going to stay out here long enough? Or if I put this log on, are you going to leave? And I'm going to have to sit here by myself until the fire is extinguished. Because if you want to keep that fire going, you have to keep feeding it. Listen, we don't have to feed God anything to keep him going. God doesn't need anything from us. He does not need our worship. He does not need our obedience. He does not need anything. And yet he still invites us to be a part of what he's doing. Meanwhile, other scholars have looked at this and said, well, the burning bush actually represents the the Hebrew people. Because remember, they're being oppressed, and yet they continue to be fruitful and multiply. So there's this flame, this fire about them, and yet they are not being consumed. Regardless of whatever the significance of the burning bush is, it catches Moses' attention. And it's key because the verse reads that he looked and he saw, which sounds like we're repeating ourselves, but how many of us know there's a difference between looking and actually seeing something? Every wife knows what this is because she sends her husband, he will go look for something, but he will never see what it is. I thought I was going to get an amen on that one, I was sure. There's a difference between looking and seeing. Now, actually, in that culture, some scholars have suggested that it would not have been uncommon for bushes to catch on fire. We're in the desert, it's the Middle East. These plants get dry, the sun is hot, and perhaps in these decades of being a shepherd, a burning bush in and of itself is not what was surprising. It was not something that was uncommon to see. It was only uncommon when he looked closer that he saw the bush was burning and not being consumed. That was the place that God came to speak to Moses. And I wonder how many of us get frustrated because we say, well, I didn't hear God speak to me. And is it that we didn't hear God speak to us or we weren't looking and seeing? There are things that look commonplace, that look ordinary, and it is in that moment and in those places that God will show up to speak to us. I've shared before that every night at dinner, we ask our boys a series of questions. And every so often, we'll ask the question, how did you see God at work today? Which I get, like, that's not like the easiest question to answer. Now, if they had a test or a quiz, they know what the answer is. God was with me on my test or my quiz. But if something that big hadn't happened, oftentimes they'll say, well, I didn't see him working today. And so the follow-up question is, 
Did you not see him working because you weren't looking or because he wasn't working? See, we know that God is always at work. And if we're not seeing it, it's because we're not looking and seeing. We become accustomed to our ordinary, everyday lives. And the beautiful thing is God will meet us there, but we have to have eyes open to look and to see. And so Moses starts to draw near to this bush, and God begins to speak. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So as Moses approaches this bush, God calls out, Moses, Moses. And then if you're not reading ancient Near Eastern literature in your free time, and I assume most of you are not, this is actually a common way in that culture to represent that there's about to be a call or commissioning on someone's life, that double naming, Moses, Moses. So God's about to call. He's about to commission Moses. This is a pivotal moment in Moses' life. And he says, here I am. And God says, before anything else, remove your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. Now, the idea of a place being holy ground, that was a very common uh, accepted thing in that culture. Now, oftentimes the people believed the holy ground was inside of a temple or at a well or a rock or some place that some god had great victory, like the dirt in the ground was holy. And if you wanted to worship that deity, you go to that place that's holy ground. But here, Moses is out in the middle of the wilderness. What makes the ground holy is not the place, it's God's presence. Holy ground is everywhere that God's presence is. And here, Moses is on this holy ground, and he has this reverence. He's taking off his sandals. He knows this is a moment where he is going to meet with God. I think for all of us, we have to be aware that when we see the burning bush, often that's a place that's holy ground for you and me as well. And it's on that holy ground that God begins to have a conversation. Verse 6, then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God tells him, take off your sandals, it's holy ground. And when he really starts to address Moses, notice what he says. Moses, I am the God of your father. See, all throughout the Old Testament, we read God saying, I am the God of your fathers, of your ancestor. But that's not what God says here. He says, I'm the God of your father. See, the question we've been asking ourselves is, who is Moses? The question Moses is asking himself is, who am I? And before God does anything else, he answers the question. He says, you are a part of my people. I am the God of your father that you don't even know. I am the God of your people. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I've been faithful through the generations. I've been faithful to your family, and I will be faithful to you. Before he goes anywhere, God establishes Moses' identity as one of his people because God didn't want to use him until he understand that his identity was found in God. And as soon as he says that, he launches into all the stuff that God is going to do. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, dot, 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 let's pause for a moment. Think about Moses hearing this for the first time. 
here's a little homework for you. Go back through these verses and notice how many times God says, I or my. He says, listen, I am going to rescue my people. I have heard their cry. I will bring them out of slavery. I will set them free. I will take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And my favorite VeggieTales line of all time, sounds sticky. Right? That is an ancient way of saying there's going to be so many resources. Like you're going to have so much cattle, so many goats. The milk will flow. There will be fruit and, and more food than you can possibly imagine. Not only that, I'm going to give you land that is so big that right now six different tribes are living in it. I am going to do all that. And I wonder if Moses is hearing that. He's like, okay, I'm part of your people. You're going to do this. Yes, God. Amen. Preach it, brother. And then you get to verse 10. It says, therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God says, I'm going to set my people free. I'm going to deliver them out of slavery. I'm going to do great works. And you know how I'm going to do it? The least effective, most frustrating way possible, I'm going to use people. I'm going to use you. And it's a reminder to all of us that God has made a lot of promises. He is bringing heaven to earth, and he has invited each of us to be a part of it. There's an invitation available to us. Listen, God's not dependent on us. Like, like God isn't worried, like, what if Moses says no, then my plans are all screwed up. No, no, he's not worried. It's an invitation. God has made a lot of promises when you read in Scripture. And the way that he wants to bring about his will and his plan is through people. Now, Moses had tried to do this before. He did the right thing the wrong way. Now God says, but listen, I want you to do the right thing my way. And God's invited each and every one of us to trust in him to do the right thing God's way. Now, Moses, what do we think? He's like, all right, yes, Lord, let's do this. That couldn't be further from his response. Verse 11, but Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? There's that question again. Who am I? Who am I that I should walk into Pharaoh's court? Who am I that I should lead the Israelite people out? I mean, don't you remember the last time I tried to help the Hebrew people out? I killed a man, messed up, had to leave town. I've been out here for decades. Like, who am I? And I wonder if, if Moses, thinking back through all of his failures and feeling like that has defined who he is. One of my favorite quotes is that failure is an event and not a person. But in Moses, looking for an identity, trying to find out who he is, he has identified himself by all of his shortcomings. Not only that, but you can even hear in that the echoes of what the Hebrews said to him. Like, who do you think you are? Who are you to try to rule over us? And I wonder how many times have we spent our lives shaping our identity around what other people have said about us. You're not smart enough. You'll never amount to anything. Who would follow you? You know, the only thing that matters in life is finance, success, family. Maybe some of us are here today and your whole life has been lived in light of the words other people have said about you. I'm actually willing to bet, though, that probably more likely is you're actually living your life and finding your identity in the words you've spoken over yourself. When my kids were little, we put our two youngest in the same room because we were stupid, and we thought they would go to sleep together. But when you put two toddlers in a room together, there's a lot of things that happen. Sleep is not one of those things. 
And so I would have to sit outside their room and every few minutes say, stop jumping on the bed, go to sleep. Stop yelling at your brother, it's time for bed. And during that time, I had to do something, so I downloaded the chess app because I'm a nerd. Well-established fact. And I was like, I want to get really good at chess. And so I would play games like every day, like I was getting pretty good at it. But inevitably, I'm going to make at least four or five dumb moves during the course of a chess game. And when I do, all of a sudden, I'm like, Matt, you're such an idiot. Why would you do that? You're so stupid. And I started to realize all of the things I was saying about myself, I would never allow people to say that about my kids. I would never allow people to talk that way to my wife, to my friends, to the people I care about. And yet I am speaking these own words over me. I know you can get real weird with like words and speaking things. I'm not big into speaking things into existence. But I do think that when we speak these thoughts, it reinforces our identity. Like we start to believe all the things that we think. And I wonder if some of us are here and maybe just like most, you're like, who am I that God would use me? Who am I that I could disciple somebody else? Who am I that I could follow Jesus? Who am I? And I love God's response to this question. Verse 13, notice God doesn't say, oh, Moses, who else would it be? You grew up in Pharaoh's household. You also have a free pass to go back to Pharaoh's court. You know what it's like to be an Egyptian and a Hebrew. He doesn't list Moses' qualifications. What does he say? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Moses, who am I? And God says, I'll be with you. It's almost as if God says, it doesn't really matter. You're mine. Your identity is found in me. Your failures, your mistakes, your shortcomings. I don't care about those things. I'm going to be with you. Because remember, I'm sending you, but I'm going to be the one to bring my people out. I'm going to be the one to set them free. I'm going to do all the heavy lifting. I'm just asking you to be obedient, and I will be with you every step of the way. Now, this was not supposed to be the end of the message. But when I was running through it this week, I realized I have another 35 minutes of material to get through, and I assume that you don't want to sit here for another 35 minutes. So we're going to do an abrupt pause here. This is a to-be-continued. Part one of two. So that's a great way to invite you to come back next week. We'll pick up. Because, by the way, this is not the only objection Moses has. He's got a handful more, and that reveals a lot about him and God to us. But I thought this would be a great stopping point because up to this point, we've been examining this question, who is Moses? What is his identity? Who was he created to be? And God's been bringing him slowly to a realization of who he is. And I'm willing to bet that maybe it's not on the forefront of your mind like it was for Moses, but I wonder if there's some people who walked in today and you're having a bit of an identity crisis. Who am I? Am I my career? Am I my kids? Am I the stuff that I own? What, like, who am I? And if we are going to understand who we are, I think we can learn some things from Moses. The first thing, if we're going to understand our identity, we have to know God. But like notice, before God commissions him, he says, I am the God of your father. You can only understand who you are in light of the one who created you. I used this illustration in the first service. It didn't go over great, but I am willing to give it a second try. So I had this thought the other day, and I was thinking, let's flash forward a million years into the future. 
All right, let's assume the world's still around. People are still here. All of our houses likely are going to be rubble, maybe underground. I don't know. And imagine an archaeologist starts digging up our homes. And I wonder if they would say, man, these were ancient people. And they all believed in this deity so strongly, they devoted an entire room in their house to this deity. In fact, we know this because at the center of every house was a room, and inside the room was a porcelain throne where they would go and they would worship God. In fact, this was such a holy place that it was sometimes the only thing in that room. There was even a holy basin to wash their hands before they made sacrifices. Like, again, I don't know if that's going over real well. But the reality is it's like you could misunderstand something if you do not understand what it was created for. But you cannot understand what it was created for until you know the one who created it. And I think a lot of us are living lives with, with mis- misshapen identities because we have not had a relationship with the one who created us. And how do we know God? Well, we know God when we look at Jesus. It's always the answer in church, right? Because in Hebrews, it says Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. Do you want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. That's why when people ask me, I've never read the Bible before, where do I start? You know, some people want to start in Genesis and read all the way through, and if that's you, go for it. I always say, start with Mark. It's the shortest gospel. It's going to introduce you to Jesus the quickest. As you read through there, you're going to see Jesus, and then you can go back and catch up on the other stuff later. Like, know Jesus, and you will know God. But even when you look at the life of Jesus, he faced a trial of identity as well. Do you remember the story about his baptism? He goes down to the river. John baptizes him. And when he comes out, it's like the spiritual mountaintop moment. The heavens open up. The spirit descends like a dove. And God said, this is my son. And I'm very proud of him. Like, I mean, I cannot think of anything like a more holier moment than God saying, you are my son and I'm proud of you. And then immediately the spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness, much like Moses. But instead of being in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is there for 40 days. It says that during that 40 days, he was fasting and praying. He was putting himself in the presence of God. And in one of the funniest verses in the Bible, at least to me, it says at the end of the 40 days, Jesus was hungry. It's like, man, if I skip a meal, I'm hungry. He's been out there for 40 days fasting and praying. And it's at that moment that the enemy comes. And the enemy tempts him. Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Wait a second, aren't you here so you could point people to God? What if you threw yourself down and the angels came and rescued you? Then people would believe what you have to say. Hey, didn't you come to bring God's kingdom? Just bow down and worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. See, we could again do a whole series on this. But these are all subtle attacks at Jesus' identity. Will he be God's son and believe what he says about him? Or will he believe the enemy? I think it's the same temptation many of us face today. Will we believe we are who God says we are? His son, his daughter, one who he loves, or will we try to find our identity apart from him? I can promise you, you will never find your identity apart from Jesus. We have to know God. But I also think it's important that we find holy ground find holy ground. And and the beautiful thing is, again, not like the ancient cultures, holy ground can happen anywhere because it's not about the place. It's about God's presence. It can happen in those ordinary everyday moments. But how do we find holy ground? How do we pay attention? I think for a lot of us, it looks like maybe cutting some things out of our life that are drowning out the sound of God's voice. 
Like maybe for some of us, it means we need to cut out social media. We can't hear God because we're too busy hearing everybody on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter what they have to say. We can't hear from God because we're too caught up in what Hannity or Maddow has to say. We can't hear from God because we're worried about what our friends and our family and our neighbors have to say. We have so much noise in our life. And what if finding holy ground meant we're going to create some space by cutting some things out, even if for just one day a week, so I could hear from God? Like, what if I told you that you would hear from God tomorrow if you woke up 15 minutes earlier? Would you do it? I mean, like, really think about that, because I love my sleep, and I'm always like, I could use extra 15 minutes of sleep, but that's all it took to create a quiet, distraction-free moment to hear from God. Are we willing to do the things necessary in order to find holy ground? Because you can find it anywhere. Holy ground can be when you go to school tomorrow, you're sitting at your desk in first period, If you're paying attention, you'll see God working. That can be holy ground. Holy ground can be when you sit at your office, at your desk. God will speak to you. When you're changing diapers, feeding your newborn, that can be holy ground as well. It can be everywhere, but will we look and see where God is at work? I don't really have time for this, but I'm still going to throw it open to Q&A because that's my favorite part of Sunday. So if anybody has any questions about anything we've talked about up to this point, I don't think we got a text in question. So if anybody wants to raise their hand and be an extrovert for the day, feel free to do that. And this is where I will awkwardly talk on stage for a moment to give anybody a second if they want to ask a question. All right. If not, going once, going twice, boom. Killed it today. Now, I do think there's one more thing if we're going to understand our identity. And this one, perhaps, is the most difficult one. It's the last instruction that God gave to Moses in the verses that we were reading. That's that we have to go. We actually have to go and to do the things that God has called us to do. Here's the reality, though. I think some of us are like, oh, God's calling me to go here and go there. Where is God calling me to go? I actually don't think that for a lot of us, we need to hear God audibly telling us to go somewhere because I can promise that as soon as we're done here, you're already going somewhere. You're going to eat Mexican food for lunch. You're going home to your family. You will go to work or school tomorrow. You will go to sports practice or whatever else you have. You're already going. The question is not, will I go, but will I go with intentionality? Will I go open eyes to see where God is at work and a willingness to join with him in what he's already doing? I'm God. God is not asking us to blaze a trail. God is not asking us to manufacture some kind of purpose or calling. He's asking us to live our everyday ordinary lives with a focus on him to see where he's at work and then to accept the invitation of joining him where he already is. And I don't know where you are, but I'm sure that all of us have a next step that we can take today. I think maybe for some of us, it really starts like you can't go and really do what God has called us to do until we've taken the moment to know who Jesus actually is. And again, that comes, I'm not talking about like praying a prayer and raising your hand during your response. I'm like, do you actually spend your life seeking to know and to follow Jesus? Are you spending time with him? Are you praying? Scripture? Sabbath? Silence and solitude? Are we doing the things to put us in the presence of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, you've never done that and you're here today and you don't know your identity because you're not going to find it until you find it in Christ. Or maybe some of you at one point, you were right there with him. But maybe you've been off in the wilderness. See, Moses was supposed to be a shepherd, a savior, but he found himself as a shepherd. 
And I wonder if God has called you somewhere, someplace, but you've allowed your failure, what you've said about yourself, what other people have spoken over you, to leave you stranded in the wilderness. And maybe today is a day, come back to Jesus. Come back to him. Come back and find your identity and who he is and what he's done for you and for me and for the world. Maybe for some of us, this is the time to make the decision. I'm going to find holy ground. I'm going to cut some things out of my life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to create space for him. Because I promise if it's important to you, you will make it a priority in your daily schedule. And if you open your eyes, I promise that you'll find burning bushes all around. Maybe for some of us, today is the day you just make that commitment. I'm going to go. I'm going to do the thing he's called me to do. I'm going to lead that life group. I'm going to serve on that team. I'm going to invite my neighbor over. I'm going to disciple that person. I'm going to ask that person to disciple me. You already know what God's asking you to do. And if you're looking for a sign, here it is. Go. Do what he's called you to do. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have your life together because he's going to be with you. He's not wanting to use you because of your strengths. He will use you in spite of your weaknesses. Because that way he gets the credit. He gets the honor. He gets the glory. And we get to be there for the ride. So all across this room, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful. We're thankful that you're already at work. You're bringing heaven to earth. When we see injustice, you're already there making things right. I pray you would be with each and every one of us. Help us to have open eyes just to see. And I pray that in those moments when we find ourselves on holy ground, that you would speak to us, remind us of who we are in you, and that you would give us the courage and the strength to do what you have called us to do. Because at the end of the day, we just want to be more like you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.